You can turn to Genesis 1. If you are visiting Grace Bible Church this morning, I want to let you know that this is not a normal morning for us. We usually spend a lot more time singing and in worship, uh, but this morning's a little different because after a couple years of preparing for it, we are finally going to study Genesis 1. It's an incredibly challenging chapter. It is full of a lot of very controversial things, and I can't give it short shrift. I got to give it time to really explore and develop. So I needed more time this morning. Wes was very generous to give it to me. We're going to cover a lot of material today. This will feel a little bit more like a seminary class than a sermon because this is such a huge topic. But unlike seminary, unlike school, you don't have to take notes. You're welcome to, but don't, don't worry about trying to keep up with me on notes. I'm going to cover a lot of ground, and then I'm going to post all of my notes this afternoon on Facebook and Twitter. They're, they're extensive, so you'll have everything there. And then on Tuesday, we'll post, again, the notes and the sermon audio and the slides on um, Facebook and Twitter on our website and on our new mobile app. So you can get everything there. You don't have to worry about trying to keep up. All right, well, let me begin with something very easy. Let me ask you, who went to the game last night? Actually, not as many of you as I would have thought. I would have thought everybody was out there. I heard it was full. Well, those of you who went, why did you go? Well, you you went to watch the Aggies win. So it was, you know, it was a good night for you, and that's exciting. Um, I did not go to the game. I didn't raise my hand because for me, weekends are are time with my kids who are three, and and I'm not really excited about taking three-year-olds to an Aggie game because I have some friends who have tried that. They've tried to take three-year-olds to an Aggie game. And invariably, here's what happens. Rather than wanting to watch the game, all their little kids want to do is run the ramps and buy concessions. That's it. And so, so daddy doesn't get to watch any of the game. He doesn't get to watch the Aggies at all because he's too busy watching the ramps as his kids run up and down. They're not interested in the game. They don't get the game. They just want the ramps and the food. And in fact, just to be honest, it'll let you into a little secret. Little kids don't actually want the Aggies to score. You know why? Because what happens in Kyle Field when they score? It gets crazy loud, and everybody's making out, and a cannon goes off, and everybody's jumping up and down. That's enough to make a three-year-old wet his pants. He doesn't, he doesn't want that. So I'm not going to spend a lot of money to take my three-year-olds to the game because they don't get it yet. They can't appreciate it. They don't understand what it's all about. Well, unfortunately, many of us make the same mistake with Genesis 1. We don't get what it's all about. We get caught up in small things. We get caught up running the ramps and buying concessions rather than seeing the big idea and the majesty of Genesis 1 and what it's meant to communicate to us. To be more specific, the minor things that distract us in Genesis 1, the ramps we get caught running up and down and up and down and up and down, are the questions how and when. How did God create and when did he do it? Those are the questions that tend to consume so much of our energy as followers of God when we look at Genesis 1. And and we will talk some this morning about how God did it and when he did it, but that's not going to be my focus this morning. That's not where I'm going to focus our attention because that is not ultimately what Genesis 1 is about. It is not about how God made the world. It is not about when God made the world. Those are not the questions that Genesis 1 is designed to answer. And so what I want us to do this morning, at least for a little while, as best we can, while we initially read the chapter, is I want us for a moment to set aside all of those controversies 
As best you can, I just want you to set aside all those questions about how and when, and I want you to read Genesis 1 like you're reading it for the first time. I want you to read it with fresh eyes, and as we read it, I want you to read it like an Israelite in the wilderness. I want you to read it and pretend that you were a member of the original audience. So, so right now, we, we are all Israelites living 3,500 years ago. That's who it was written to. You're an Israelite living 3,500 years ago. You spent your whole life in Egypt as a slave of the Egyptians. So, so you don't really know anything about science. You just know that life is hard and painful and surprisingly brief. That's, that's really all you know about life. And, and after all of this time in Egypt, you, you inherited a lot of, of Egyptian religion. You grew up hearing about the Egyptian gods and how they made the world. And it was not very pretty. As the Egyptians, you see, they worshipped a, a pantheon of gods, a whole lot of gods who were all limited and, and fickle, and, and they were all pretty cruel and, and corrupt. They were often in competition and war with one another, and they don't care anything about you. The, the Egyptian gods could care less about humanity. You were just created to be slave labor for the gods so they could live a life of leisure. That's what you grew up hearing living in Egypt. But now, after a whole life in Egypt, this guy named Moses, he came along and, and he delivered you. And, and now you have left Egypt and he's taking you to this place called the promised land. It's, it's yours. It's going to be your place, this paradise for you. But to get there, you have to walk through this, through the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. It's hot. It's harsh. It's deadly. It's an incredibly hard place to try to survive. And so you are walking through the, the heat and the harshness of the Sinai Desert. And the question that comes to your mind is, is not, how did God make this and when did he do it? No, your question is, can I trust this God of Moses? This God who has supposedly led me out of the relative safety of Egypt. Yeah, I was a slave, but I had food. I had water. Can I trust this God who has led me out of Egypt? Or is he going to abandon me like the gods of Egypt would? Are we going to get to the borders of the promised land and the gods of the Canaanites are going to whip up on our God and, and, and we're going to die in the wilderness? Can I trust that this God is powerful enough to keep me alive and, and deliver me? Can I trust that this God is faithful enough to stick with me? Or is he going to abandon me when life gets hard? When it's 110 degrees outside and I have no food and water, what I want to know is, does this God have my back? That's what Genesis 1 is about. That's the question it's designed to answer. Can you, an Israelite living 3,500 years ago, walking through the desert, can you trust the God of Moses? So with that idea in mind, with that background in mind, that is the question on your mind, let's read Genesis 1 as if you're reading it for the first time. I want you to read it with fresh eyes. We're going to read the whole thing because it wasn't given with verses. It's given as a whole story. So we're going to read the whole thing. Start with me in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse and it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. 
God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made also the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed him saying, be fruitful and multiply and and fill the waters in the sea and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Before we explore the details of this passage, I want us to to point out, I want us to notice three things that the original audience would have clearly seen. They wouldn't have questioned this. They they would have seen these clues. Three things that would have jumped out to them about this chapter. First of all, they would have understood, this isn't a myth. They would, have, they would have recognized Moses is telling us that this really happened. Whatever the details are, however it happened, it really happened. It's not a made-up story. If it's a made-up story, then it's useless to the Israelites in the wilderness. If it's made up, then it, it tells them nothing about the trustworthiness of their God. They would have received this as a true story. So it's truth. That's the first thing that would stand out. It's not a myth. Second thing that would stand out, it is polemic. That's an odd word. Polemic, it means a passionate argument. 
You, you read it as a 21st century American, and you don't hear the passion in Moses' words. This is apologetics. Moses is doing apologetics here. He is convincing his audience that their God is infinitely better than the gods of Egypt. And so it's interesting. You you don't know this, but they would have seen this. A lot of the words and images that Moses uses in Genesis 1 are the same words and images used in Egyptian stories about creation. He uses the same words and images, and then he flips them on their head and shows it was not, it's not their gods, it's our God who did it. Here's an example. On, on day two, uh, God separates this infinite expanse of water into the waters below, the waters above, and puts the sky in between. The Egyptians had that same idea. Same thing happening, but in the Egyptian stories, all three are gods. You got the water below God, water above God, and the sky God. Sky God stepped in because the water below God, water above God were having too much sex. And so he stepped in to separate them. That's the Egyptian story of day two. Moses uses the same imagery and says, "Uh uh-uh, this is our God doing it through his sovereign spoken word. We read Genesis 1 and we get consumed by science. Is this a science textbook? Is it a history textbook? No, No, it's a smackdown. Moses is taking to task every one of the Egyptian gods. There's actually a god, uh, an Egyptian god, in every one of those six days that is being humiliated. Conrad Heyer says, each day of creation dismisses an additional cluster of deities. Everything that the Egyptians worshipped as a god, Moses says, no, our god made it. It's not a god, it's not something to be worshipped, it's something God made, just like you or me. So Genesis 1, it reads like apologetics. It's an impassioned argument that our God is better than the gods of Egypt. That would have been clear to the Israelites. They would have seen it as apologetics. Third, they would have seen it as poetry. If I say to you, roses are red, violets are blue, how do you know that I'm speaking poetry? Because I've used the the English markers of poetry, rhyme and rhythm. You hear it and you know instantly. Well, in Hebrew, they didn't use rhyme or rhythm for poetry. What did they use? See it all the time in Psalms. Repetition. You you repeat words, you repeat ideas, you repeat structures. That's Hebrew poetry. Well, what do you see a lot of in chapter 1? Repetition. The same words, the same phrases, the same ideas, morning and evening. Over and over again. It was good. Over and over again. God said over and over again. They would have recognized this as a poetic type of literature. It's poetry. As, as Timothy Keller points out, and, and I think this is a very good point, the original Israelites would have heard this more like a song than a textbook. That's what it would have sounded like to them because they would have heard that this is poetic. It's poetry. So when we look at Genesis 1, it is not myth. We're clear on that. It's not myth, but it's also not a science textbook. It is a poetic, polemic narrative designed to show that our God is better than the Egyptian gods. That's the idea behind Genesis 1. Now, with those big ideas in mind, let's jump into the details. Let's see what Moses has to say to us. The chapter begins with a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, heavens and the earth, in Hebrew, that means the universe. It's everything that is. God created everything that is, and that verb in Hebrew, bara, it means to create something that is entirely new. In the Old Testament, it's only used of things God can do. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but uh, theologically speaking, only God can create. Only God can create something entirely new. Humans, we can make stuff, only God can create entirely new things. 
So he creates the universe entirely new, and he does it out of nothing. There there was nothing there that God was working with. He doesn't take out his tools and start fashioning something. No, he creates out of nothing. Hebrews is actually really clear about that, an important cross-reference for you. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. The universe is not eternal. It has not always been. At some point in time, God created it out of nothing. So that's our summary statement, our title at the beginning. God, at some point in time, steps up and he creates the universe out of nothing. And that universe includes not just the heavens, but also the earth. But at this point in time, there are a couple deficiencies with the earth, with with this world. There's a couple things that are lacking. Look with me in verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Moses wants us to understand. God has has created all the raw materials for everything, and and we look at this, this world that he has made, but there's a couple deficiencies with the world at this point in time. It's not complete yet. In particular, Moses tells us, first of all, it's formless. Formless is is the word that's used for like a lump of clay. A lump of clay, it doesn't have any shape to it. And as a result, it's useless. You can't hold water with it. You can't eat off it. It's just a useless lump of clay. And that's what the the world was in verse two. It It was formless. It was useless. It could not do what God had designed it to do. It could not yet support life. As a result, not only is it formless, but it is void, it is empty. There's there's nothing in it. And so if you want to picture what the world looks like, well, close your eyes because there's no light. There's just a glob of ground covered with an endless ocean, no sky, no heavens, no light, nothing, just formlessness. Okay, it's formless and void. It's not yet ready. It's not that it's bad. It's not that it's evil. It's just the earth is not complete yet. It's not finished. And so for the rest of Genesis 1, verses 3 through the end, verse 31, God is going to correct these two deficiencies. That's what most of chapter 1 is about. God fixing these two things that are lacking in our world. He is going to bring form to it, and he is going to fill it. And it's fascinating when you look at the structure. Days 1 through 3 are about what? They're about forming the world, creating uh, clarity and order to the world. Days 4 through 6 are about what? filling the world. Okay, so that's how the chapter breaks down. So, so you could put it together in a, in a chart like this. Days one, two, three are about forming the world, ordering it. Days four, five, and six are about filling the world. Together they will fix everything that was lacking with our world. So let's, let's talk about these days. Let's walk through these days. Day number one, God creates the light and he separates it from the darkness. And he he calls it good. He kind of delineates what's going on there. I want you to notice a few things that you see in day one that you're going to see again in many of these days. Um, First of all, when God creates, all he has to do is speak. That's significant. Compared to all other religions where create, or all other ancient religions where creation came out of war or sex among the gods, all our God does is speak. He doesn't take out a toolbox. He just speaks. His words are so authoritative, are, are so powerful that when he speaks, all matter and energy obeys. Everything just, just jumps when he speaks. And so, so creation is a speech act of God. It demonstrates his infinite power over all that exists. So, so God simply speaks. That's all he has to do in this chapter. Um, second thing to notice, it's really interesting. It's true on day one and many other days. A lot of creation is not about God creating stuff. It's about God separating stuff. 
It's really interesting. Did you notice how often God is pulling two things apart? Light and darkness, land and water, sky and water. He's pulling, he's separating things about and bringing order. It's fascinating. One of the major themes that is throughout the Bible and begins in Genesis 1 is that you have a God who loves order. He loves to bring order to things. So he's going to do a lot of that, setting boundaries and bringing order to creation. That's the second thing to notice. Third thing to notice here on day one that you'll see throughout the other days, God is going to name stuff. Over and over again, he makes something and then he names it. And in the ancient world, to name something was to exercise sovereignty over it. If you're the one who gets to give the name, that means you own it. It's yours. You, you get to rule over it. You get to define it. And so God is going to exercise his sovereignty over everything in creation. That's fascinating when you get to chapter 2. And God's going to let somebody else do some naming. So it's going to be neat when we watch that and see that next week. Fourth thing to notice here in day 1 is that at the end of creating stuff, God is going to declare it good. Every day is going to be either good or very good, with the exception of day two, the, the Monday of the week, is not good, and we'll talk about why that is later. It's, it's for a good reason, but we'll, we'll get to there later in the sermon. Um, every other day is either good or it's very good, and when God declares something good, he is exercising judgment on it. He is judging that it is morally good and it is appropriate. It is exactly what he wanted it to be. And the importance of seeing this word good, 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 good repeated throughout chapter one is to notice at the beginning, creation was completely good. There was no sin. There was no evil. There was no pain. There was no brokenness. That won't come until later. At the beginning, everything is good. Okay, so just a few things to notice as we walk through these days, things that you see first on day one. The second day, day two, God is going to create the sky and the seas. If you want to picture what's going on in day two, basically you've got a, glo- a glob of ground that is covered by an unending amount of water. And so God de- creates a horizontal plane that separates that water into the waters below and pushes out the waters above and fills the middle with the sky. So that's what he does on day two. He's creating, but he's also separating and drawing boundaries between these things. He's creating different realms, different spaces in creation as he brings form to it. Next day, day three, God begins to focus on, on the waters that are below and he causes some of them to dry out so that dry land begins to appear for the first time. And God draws boundaries between the land and the sea. He brings order and shape to things. And then God immediately begins to work on that land. He begins to fill it with, with all plant life. Just immediately begins to bring forth all plant life, every plant according to its kind. Now, just so you know, when, when the Hebrew text in Genesis 1 says that God creates every kind of plant, we don't know what kind means. It's not a scientific term. We don't know if that means does he create every species of plant individually, or does he create just one type of fruit-bearing tree that, that ends up adapting into every type of tree we see today. Don't know, because the Hebrew isn't specific. Okay, so God creates all plant life. That's the big idea. So at the end of day three, deficiency one is now fixed. The earth is no longer formless. It's got really clear form. It's got really clear order. God has brought design to the earth and created each of these realms. The realm of the day, the realm of the night, the realm of the waters above, the realm of the sky, the realm of the sea, the realm of the land. There's order, there's spaces. So, so there's now form. And now that God has fixed the form issue, now he's going to move on to the second deficiency. 
The earth is still void. It is still empty. God is going to begin to fill it with inhabitants who rule over each of those realms. Okay, that's what the second set of days is. God begins to fill it with inhabitants who rule over it. The first is the lights. In day four, God creates the sun to fill and rule over the day, the moon and the stars to fill and rule over the night. In day five, he creates the fish and the birds, the fish to inhabit and rule over the ocean, the the birds to inhabit and rule over the sky. So he is filling each of these realms with creatures that, that he makes. Again, we don't know how broad the word kinds is when it talks about fish or birds. Finally, we get to day six, and and day six, if you read it carefully, day six stands out, because every other day so far has been a day, a third day, a fourth day, but this is the sixth day. This is the day of culmination. This is the day that it's all been about, the day where creation reaches its goal. Every other day was good, except the second day. This day is very good. Okay, so what is it that's so special about this day? Well, it begins very similar to day five. God creates animal life, okay? Whatever the kinds mean. He creates all animal life to inhabit the earth. That is good. He declares animals to be good, but what's very good is us. This is when God creates humanity as his image bears. And it's interesting when God talks about creating man and, and woman, when he talks about creating humanity, he uses that word bara again. We are something entirely new. There was nothing made in God's image before us. We are his unique image bearers. And it's when God has created us as his unique image bearers that he declares everything to be very good when we come along. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about God's creation of us next week when we look at Genesis 2. Right now, we're just going to pass over it. Once he's created his image bearers, God provides plant life to to support all of us. Green plants, just so you know, they're at the end, verses 29 and 30. We don't know if that means that in Genesis 1, everyone was a vegetarian or if it means that God created photosynthetic plants to be the basis of the food chain. So ultimately, even today, a lion gets its food from green plants. It just comes via the gazelle. Okay, so we don't know which of those is the idea here. The point is basically God provides. He provides all the food that anyone needs. So now that everything is provided for, everything is taken care of, God declares it all to be very good. Now the king rests. The king over creation, the creator, he takes his Sabbath. That's day seven. It's in chapter two. We're going to look at that in a few weeks. The significant thing just to know ahead of time is that unlike every other day, day seven hasn't ended. There is no evening and morning with day seven. It is ongoing. God is still resting now from creation. He's not creating today. He won't take up the mantle of creation again until when? When will he begin to create again? The end of the book of Revelation. New heavens and the new earth. God stops resting, steps up, and recreates. Okay, so there's the details of Genesis 1. A lot of material that we're covering as we look at this, but now we got to get to the question that everybody wants to know. How do you reconcile all of this data from Genesis 1 with modern science, with evolution and geology and physics and all of that stuff? How did God actually make the world? And when did he do it? Recently or a long time ago? I'm going to do my best to walk you through those views. It's hard, though, because there are so many views. 
Literally hundreds of views that Christians give to answer that question. And actually, a lot of those views go back a long time ago, way before the scientific revolution, way before Darwin. Do you know, Christians were actually fighting about Genesis 1 all the way back in 300 AD. Long time ago, there were already multiple views on how God did it. So there's a whole lot of views, more than I could possibly count. I'm going to lay them out for you. It's going to be a lot of material. I'm going to lay out the seven big ones. As quickly as I can, I'm going to walk you through the seven major views of how this all fits together with modern science. Before I do that, though, I have to define a term. I have to define a word that has proven to be very controversial over the history of this debate, a word that is often oversimplified. It's the word evolution. I have to talk about what evolution is. Typically, when we think about Genesis 1 and we think about this issue of evolution, we tend to think of evolution as either true or false, good or bad. That's not helpful. That's a vast oversimplification. As I began to read and study all these views and all the literature, I recognized really quickly that different people mean different things by the word evolution. You have to have that clear in your head or these views are not going to make sense. So let me quickly walk you through. This is not a scientific account. This is Blake's attempt to to summarize the three major ways that people use the word evolution. First of all, there's those who are talking about naturalistic evolution. Naturalistic evolution is the view that there is no God, that all life developed from the simplest cell all the way up to highest life without help, just by natural processes. This one for us is off the table. We can't go there because we believe that a God exists. We talked about that at length last week, why it's more reasonable to believe that a God exists than he doesn't. If you believe that a God exists, then you can't hold to naturalistic evolution. So this one's off the table. We set it aside. Second way that people use the word evolution is theistic evolution. Theistic evolution holds that life um, began with a miracle, that God created the first spark of life, and then God guided the development of that spark of life all the way up to higher orders of life through natural processes like genetic variability and natural selection, uh, with one exception, and that's us. Somehow God created humanity special and unique. That's the view of theistic evolution. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourselves, well, Blake, that's not a position that any Christian can hold. Well, I beg to differ. You probably have some people who hold that position sitting next to you this morning. There are lots of godly evangelical scholars who hold to theistic evolution. This one is not off the table for us. Whether you hold it or not, it's, it's allowable because it says that God exists and that God did it. He guided and directed all of it and created human beings special. So that's theistic evolution. The third type of evolution is what you might call, this is just my made-up word, confined evolution. And it means evolution happens within the word kinds of Genesis 1. Whatever kinds of life God creates in Genesis 1, he supernaturally created them, and then they evolved and diversified into all the species you have today. And there's a range of of different options here because we don't know how broad that word kinds is. Is it species, genus, family, order, class? What is it? We don't know. So could it be that uh, you have broadly confined confined evolution? The, The idea here is that maybe God created one kind of cat like creature. And it diversified through evolution into the 114 species of cat on earth today. Or maybe you have really narrowly confined evolution. God created all 114 types of cats, and they have just moved and adapted a little bit, just evolved a little bit over time. 
Here's the key that I want to make really clear. It'll help in this debate. The thing that we need to understand is that all of us believe in evolution, at least in its most basic definition. Most basic definition is this, just that genetics of a population change over successive generations. We, we adapt to the environment, at least a little bit. All of us would agree on that. We just don't know how broadly, how much does God allow evolution to move. And it's helpful to define this and clarify this because if you stop and think about it for a moment, even if you hold to really narrowly confined evolution, you got to admit, whatever evolution is doing, it's one of the most beautiful parts of God's design. He created life to continually improve itself. That's crazy. I was an engineer. Let me tell you, there's no engineer on the planet who could create a system that is continually improving itself. It's beautiful what God did. So evolution isn't something to be afraid of. It's not this boogeyman we need to run from. We just need to define it clearly. All of us hold the evolution in some form, whether really narrow or very broad. Okay, so with that in mind, let's now jump into these seven major views that are held by evangelical scholars. I've divided them into three groups based on how they answer the question, how old is the earth? Okay, so that's how we're going to look at this. The first view uh, answers that the earth is young. This is young earth creationism. So young earth creationism holds that the days in Genesis 1 are six literal consecutive 24-hour days. So God created everything in 144 hours. Okay, and, and because that's such a small space of time, clearly he had to do it all miraculously. There's not a lot of natural processes going on there. God just, boom, he did it and it's done. Young earth creationists hold that the earth is actually quite young. It, it can only be at the most a few days older than the first human, which would be maybe 50,000 years ago. I'm not sure. Um, but most of them actually hold that the earth is more like six to 10,000 years old because of the genealogies in Genesis. They, they believe that the genealogies are comprehensive, meaning there's no gaps in the genealogy. So you just add up all of the people from Adam to Jesus and you get an earth that is six to 10,000 years old. So young earth creationists, that's how they put it together. Obviously, they're, they're going to hold to very confined evolution because there's just not much time for species to adapt or change. There are some strong advantages to this view. It is kind of the clearest view. When you read the text, it's the easiest for our minds to, to wrap around. Um, it is also the view that was held by most of uh, scholars throughout church history. And it does justice to the fact that in Scripture, whenever you see the words day combined with evening and morning, it does always mean 24 hours. Okay, so they've got some strong advantages in their favor, but they also do have some significant disadvantages, I think, as well. Um, number one, next week we're going to read chapter two, and we're going to see creation told again, a second telling of creation, and the order is a little different, and the explanations are a little different. So that would indicate that one of the accounts at least has to have something that's not literal in it if you're going to fit them together. Second thing that should stand out to us uh, is, is when we look at days one and four and we see something odd going on. In day one, God creates light and darkness, day and night, but he doesn't get around to creating the things that make day and night and mark evening and morning until day four. So 
What does a day even mean on days one, two, three when you got no sun, moon, and stars? That's a, a challenge. Uh, third disadvantage, and this is the one that typically jumps to people's minds first, is young earth creationism doesn't line up with the consensus on modern science. Now, they, they have kind of their own explanations of, of science, but it doesn't line up with the consensus held by most scientists. Uh, now, young earth creationists, they'll point um, to things like, well, geology, maybe it's not explained by long periods of time, but by lots of water, the flood. Maybe that's why we have the geology that we do. But actually, I think the biggest challenge for young earth creationists are just some, some basic issues in physics, Example, for example. Um, we can see that stars are billions of light years away. And so the fact that we can see that light that originated billions of light years away means that those stars are billions of years old, just, just by simple mathematics, unless conditions were radically different during that first week, which is possible. Now, young earth creationists are quick to point out, well, God created the universe to look old. He created it with the appearance of age, just like he created Adam as a full-grown man and not a baby. That's a great answer. It's, it's a really good answer that they give. I do think, though, that it introduces us to the fourth and final problem with young earth creationism, and that's that God created a universe that, does not, uh, that is not what it appears. It, it appears to be old when it is, in fact, young. Why, why would God do that? Why would he create stars that, that look old or rocks that look old when they are, in fact, young? When I look at Psalm 19 and Romans 1, it says that creation declares God to me, but, but how can I understand what it's declaring about God if I don't even understand what it's declaring about itself? So, young earth creationism, strong advantages and strong disadvantages, like every other view. There's good stuff and there's bad stuff. So, let's move on to the second view. Uh, second view holds that the earth is old. The earth is very old, and there's a couple different versions here. The first is called day-age. Day-age, basically they hold that every day in Genesis 1 refers to a long period of time. Actually, you see the word day used of something that's not 24 hours in the next chapter. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Well, but in chapter one, it was six days. Here it's one day. So, so day can clearly refer to something other than 24 literal hours. Uh, and so day age says that, that these, uh, these days could refer to thousands or millions or, or even billions of years, uh, long periods of time during which God progressively created the heavens and the earth. And so this view is often called progressive creationism. He did it progressively over a long period of time through, through some miraculous acts and through some natural processes he brought about everything that exists. And, and this view holds that the language of Genesis 1 is, is not a scientific account. It is a, a description of, of what people would have experienced if they would have been there. So in day four, when it says God created the sun, moon, and stars, it didn't really create them. What he did is clear the atmosphere of a messed up earth so that people would be able to, for the first time, see the sun, moon, and stars. So it's experiential language throughout here. Well, this one has some, some strong advantages. The word day can refer to a long period of time in the Bible. Um, and you can clearly fit much better with the consensus of modern science. They got some disadvantages too. Again, whenever you see day combined with morning and evening in the Bible, it's always 24 hours. Uh, and in addition, they still have a hard time lining up with modern science because even if you allow for long gaps of time, the sequence doesn't perfectly match up with what science reveals. So um, anyway, so this view is, is, has its own challenges. The third view, which also 
answers that the earth is old. It's called Days of Proclamation. This is an interesting one. Basically, it says the days are literal, six literal 24-hour consecutive days. But God wasn't actually creating on these days. All God was doing was proclaiming what he was about to do. He was telling us what's coming. He was proclaiming what creation would be and how great it would be. And it wasn't until after he did it that creation actually happened. This one is easy to conceptualize. Think about the game last night. At some point before the game, Coach Sumlin had his team in and on a big dry erase board, he drew out a play with X's and O's and told everybody where to go. Well, this view says Genesis 1 is coach drawing on the board everything that's going to happen, where everybody's going to go. It happened before the actual events. Okay, so with that idea in mind, then how did the world come to be? Well, through natural processes. Because Genesis 1 doesn't really talk about the actual work of creation. It's just how God proclaimed that it would come about. Advantages, well, you get to keep calling days literal 24-hour periods, so that's nice. Uh, and this one is really easy to fit with science because basically it doesn't say much at all about how God actually did it. There are some disadvantages, though, and that's that probably when you were reading Genesis 1 with me a little while ago, it probably didn't occur to you to think that this is God telling us what he would do. It probably sounded to you like it was God actually doing the stuff. Because it says that he spoke, and then it was so, and it was good. Sounds like God is working as he is speaking. So this one's a little more challenging because of that. All right. Got to stretch a little bit, shaking your seats. Uh, you won't offend me if you need to stand up and, and stretch a little bit. I completely understand. I kind of feel the need myself. Third set of views. These views say that the age of the earth is indeterminate. Basically, these views say text isn't telling us how old the earth is. First is called gap theory. This one is interesting. Uh, Gap theory, uh, basically it it contends that there is a gap of an unspecified amount of time between verses one and two. And that in verse two, when we see the earth and it is formless and void, it is actually creation having been ruined. Okay, so those words often in the Bible, formless and void, are not good things. Often they're the results of sin, of destruction. So gap theory contends that the universe was created, verse 1, who knows how long ago, billions of years ago, and then at some point Satan fell to earth that God had created and he messed it all up. And and that's what we see in verse 2, a messed up earth. And then from verses 3 to the end, it's not God creating the earth, it's God fixing the earth, recreating it, reclaiming it from what Satan had destroyed. Well, that view makes some sense, and and it has some some strong advantages. Um, Formless and void, again, that's often how the words are used in Scripture, of something that is under judgment. And this one fits easily with science, because you just move all of science to to that gap between verses 1 and 2. Things like old rocks and stars far away and dinosaurs, well, that all happened in the first one that got ruined. So it makes it quite easy to fit it all together. Um, there are some disadvantages, and the first is, man, that's, that's a stretch. That's, that's hard to see that. The Hebrew doesn't actually mention any gap in there. It's, it's what we would call an argument from silence. There's no clear data that that's what's going on. You are just conjecturing that, that maybe that's what's fitting here. So we can't prove this view one way or another. It seems like a, a stretch because the Hebrew does not indicate a gap at all. Uh, next view, days of revelation. Actually, really, I love this view. This is a fun view. Um, this view starts with a really good observation. Observation is how many people were around when God made the earth? None. No one was there to watch it. So for Moses to be able to tell us what happened, God had to show it to him later. 
right? Moses wasn't there, so he's not recording what he saw. He, he had to have God show it to him. Um, and so maybe, what if these six days of creation are not six days in which God actually created, they are six days, six literal days that occurred 3,500 years ago when Moses climbed Mount Sinai and met with God and God showed him what happened. Easiest way to think about this is to imagine that Moses is up there on Mount Sinai with God and God pulls out his, his home video projector and, and he shows Moses this really long movie. It takes six days to show it, but he's here, Moses, this is what I have done. I want you to record this movie of what I've done. So the six days are the days in which God revealed it to Moses. Now you're laughing because that seems absurd, but it's actually not absurd because there's another book of the Bible that is very much like what I just described. What book is that? Revelation. God takes John to heaven and shows John things that have not happened yet. Hadn't happened in John's day, hadn't happened our day. And what's fascinating is that John doesn't write, this is what God will do. He writes as though he's there. He tells us, this is what I see. This is what's happening on the earth. But it wasn't, it hasn't happened yet. John's describing something in the future as if he's in it because God is revealing it to him. So it's not a far-fetched view. It actually, it has some strong advantages. It fits well with Revelation. It's easy to reconcile with science because Genesis 1 is now not telling us how God did it. It's how God revealed it to Moses. But there are some disadvantages here. And the biggest is, now I just can't prove this one at all. Moses doesn't tell us anywhere, hey, this is me meeting with God, watching his movie. He doesn't give us any clues. John at least gave us some clues. He told us that he's being taken to heaven to see this this vision. So this one is tougher, hard to prove. Sixth view, preparation of the land. Preparation of the land, um, again, a view that starts with a fascinating observation. There's a Hebrew word, aretz, throughout chapter one. In your Bible, it is translated earth. Earth, but in Hebrew it actually means land. There was no separate word in Hebrew for, for the globe that we call the earth, because they didn't know anything about a globe. They just knew the land that they're in. And, and when you look at the Old Testament, that word aretz, it almost always is not of any land anywhere. It's of what we now call the promised land. That land from the Nile River to the Euphrates, where the Garden of Eden was in the middle of it, the land that God promised to Abraham, the land that the whole Bible is about, that is the arets of almost all of the Bible. So this view says, why shouldn't that be the arets of chapter 1? What if chapter 1 isn't about God making the globe? Because the Israelites wouldn't know anything about a globe. All they would know about is the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. So what if the whole chapter is about God preparing the promised land for his people? In this view, the earth could have been created by other means millions or billions of years ago. Life could have existed all over it. The problem is is that when we come across the promised land in verse 2, it is formless and void. Darkness is over it and it's covered in water. So the promised land is sunken, it's filled with water, it's not habitable for life, and so chapter one is about God preparing the land we think of as kind of modern day Israel, preparing it for his people. So he pulls it up so that it's not flooded anymore, and he clears the sky above it, and he populates it with with plant life and animals and birds, and then he creates this new thing, this unique thing, humanity that hadn't existed anywhere else, he creates to enjoy and rule over this promised land. This view, I think, is very compelling, very compelling, because that is how the word is used throughout almost the entire rest of the Bible. Not for globe, but for the promised land. This view fits really well with modern science because it says nothing about what God did on the rest of the planet. 
He could have done anything there. It's about the promised land. That fits really well with the theme of the Old Testament. Uh, the disadvantages of this view, well, uh, primary disadvantage is I just, I can't prove it to you. I can't show that this is absolutely what's going on because Moses doesn't tell us for sure that this is what he had in mind. There are also a couple of passages in Exodus that, that seem to suggest that Genesis 1 is about more than just the boundaries of the land, but, but it's not, we're not sure. So this view, very compelling, can't prove it, but, but very compelling. Finally, seventh view, literary framework. Literary framework view just says, hey, why don't we really do justice to all the poetry and imagery that we find in Genesis 1? Maybe Genesis 1 was never meant to tell you how the world was made or when it was made. Maybe it's really just a poem, a poem similar to Egyptian poems. Moses has just taken that Egyptian poetry and flipped it on its head to show that it's really all about our God and what our God has done. So the six days, they're, they're not actual earthly days. They're a literary device, a poetic tool that Moses uses to build a poem. Okay, this view has some strong advantages. Chapter one really is full of poetry. We don't recognize it because that's not how English poetry works, but it's full of Hebrew poetry. Uh, it does justice to the connections with Egyptian literature. A lot of the same images and metaphors are found in Egyptian literature. So, so some very strong advantages. The, the, actually, the best thing of this one is it actually gives a good explanation for why day one and four look so similar. Day one and four, God creates light and darkness. Day and night, day four, he creates the thing that gives light and darkness and defines day and night. This view holds that that's the same day. Moses is just describing it from two different perspectives. Well, that, that actually gives an answer to why those two view, days are so similar. Uh, disadvantages to this view, man, it is hard to explain. It's hard to wrap your mind around. It's hard to conceptualize. And, and you really, you, you can't prove it one way or another. It'd be nice if I could hop in a time machine and travel back in time 3,500 years and sit down with an Israelite and ask, is this a poem? But I can't. Man, they've been dead a long time. So we can't tell for sure how they would have read it. So uh, this view has advantages and disadvantages like all the others. All right. So we're running out of time. Question you're all wondering. Which view do I hold to? <laughs> which view do I think is right? That's a very hard question. That's a very hard question. The more I have studied over the last couple of years, the more I've found myself drawn to views six and seven because of what they do with the text. Not because of science, but because of what they do with the text. But I am really not sure. I don't know which view is right. Because every single view on the board has problems, and every single view on the board is held by evangelical scholars who are way smarter than me. I really don't know which view is right. I, in fact, to be honest with you, I don't think I'm going to know how God did it until God tells me. But you know what? That's okay. That's all right that I'm not going to know the how and when until I see God because that is not what Genesis 1 is about. It's not about how God did it. It's not about when God did it. Those were not the questions that the Israelites were asking. That's not what the Israelites needed to know. Genesis 1 wasn't written to a convention full of scientists. It was written to believers on a journey of faith through a wilderness their life is at stake. They want to know in the midst of our suffering and pain and fear, can we trust this God? That's actually what, what Genesis 1 is about. Not the, not the how or the when, but the who and the why. Who did it and why did he do it? Those are the two questions that motivated Moses to write Genesis 1. So who was it that made creation? The one true God. 
Not the gods of the Egyptians, not random chance and blind processes that naturalistic evolution would proclaim. No, your God did it. Your God created the heavens and the earth and he did it out of his infinite power. By his spoken word, he called into existence that which did not exist before. He speaks and creation jumps. Matter and energy obey his every move. He created everything by his sovereign will. Creation is not a product of sex or war among competing gods. It is the product of the sovereign almighty will of your God. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. The message of these two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, is this. You've seen the sea, the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. You've watched the birds and the fish. You've marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings. Fantastic, isn't it? Well, now meet the one who's behind it all. That's the point. Moses wants to introduce us to the God who is behind it all. Genesis 1 is about who did it, our one true almighty God. It's about who did it, and it's about why he did it. Why did God do all of this? Why did he make the universe? That great why question. Well, Genesis 1 declares he did it for you. He did it for us. When you read Genesis 1, I hope it was clear to you, not all days are equal in Genesis 1. One day and one act within creation stands above everything else. Everything else is a day. Day six is the day. Everything else is good. This one act is very good. When God made you, his image bearers, all of creation was designed to prepare a good place for you. That's what Genesis 1 is about. God is creating a good place for you to live a good place for you to live with God and to serve God and to rule with God. That actually is why day two is not good. Not because it's a Monday, but because what did God do on day two? Well, he separated water and put sky in between and it resulted in a place that none of us could live. The oceans and the sky are great for fish and birds, but you're not a fish or a bird. So it's not that day two is bad. It's just, it's not good because it didn't create a place for you. All of Genesis 1 is about God creating a place for us to live with him and serve him. What that means is that Genesis 1 is not about science, it's about love. It is about the boundless love of an almighty creator God who needs nothing, who is completely satisfied for all of eternity, choosing to step in and create a place for us. A place where we would enjoy him and know him and serve him forever. God was really kind to me this summer as I was studying this passage and reading all of these theology books and wrestling with all this theology. It was time to go on my anniversary trip. Julie, my 10-year anniversary, went to Acadia National Park. And so I am reading Genesis 1. I'm reflecting on the truths here while I am seeing stuff like this, mountains that God created overlooking the sea and beaches that are rocky that you walk on and, and beautiful trails through the wilderness, through thick woods and, and humpback whales frolicking in the ocean. And I'm seeing all of these incredible things in creation and it dawns on me, all of this is for me. God made it all for us out of love. He didn't have to. There was no one who compelled God to make all of that beautiful stuff. He made it for you so that you could enjoy it, so that you could live in it with him. He made it to reveal his goodness and power and love and majesty to us. Creation isn't about science. It's about love. 
about the boundless love of the creator for us. And so where I want to leave you this morning as you think about Genesis 1 is I want to ask you, do you know this God? This infinite, almighty, powerful God who created the universe out of his spoken word and did it out of love for you. Do you know him? Now what we will learn in a few weeks is that just a couple chapters later in Genesis 3, we blow it. We rebel against this God and we fall into sin. We bring pain and destruction into all of creation that, that he has made. But the good news is God's love doesn't end for us in creation. Creation is actually God's second greatest gift of love to you. His greatest gift comes after we've blown it. When God himself takes on human flesh, the son of God comes to earth and takes our sins and our punishment upon himself and dies on the cross He suffers the punishment we deserve so that we can be forgiven and can receive eternal life with the creator God for all eternity. Then Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and now he offers to everyone here, to every person on the planet, he offers eternal life with this creator God in the new heavens, in the new earth as an absolutely free gift. Don't have to earn it. It is yours for free. Just say, God, I believe. I believe you died for me, rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven. I received that gift. For all of us who have believed that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us and rise from the dead, my challenge to you is to study these different views on the how and when of creation and discuss them with one another, but do it graciously. Because the how and when of Genesis 1 is not a gospel issue. It's not what Genesis 1 is about. It's not meant to divide us. Young earth creationists, day age guys, theistic evolutionists, we're all on the same team because we believe in the same God who created out of love for us. Let's remember that. Don't waste your energy on a lot of debates. Instead, expend your energy introducing people to this God who out of infinite power and boundless love created all things. Let's turn to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we worship you and praise you that you are infinite in power. We praise you that you created all things out of nothing by your spoken word. You are not limited. Nothing held you back. You did not have to create. Nothing compelled you to make. But in freeness and in love, you created all that exists. We praise you for how powerful you are. And we praise you that it is love that motivated you to create, that you created the world so that we would have a place, a space where where we could live and know you and be with you and serve you. Thank you that you made creation for us. And thank you that when we blew it, when we rebelled against you, our creator, thank you that in an even greater act of love, you came, you sent your son to die for us, to take our punishment and then rise from the dead. And now you offer us forgiveness and eternal life with you in a new and perfect heaven and earth as a free gift. Thank you for your boundless love on display in Genesis 1. I pray that when we study Genesis, when we wrestle with this chapter, that we would keep your power and your love front and center, that we would not get caught up and distracted by lesser things. I pray that we would be a testimony to this world that there is a God of infinite power and boundless love. Thank you that you exist. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you have delivered us from our sin. In the name of your son who has made it possible, we pray. Amen. All right, now as we close, wanted to let you guys know again, all the notes will be up on Facebook and Twitter this afternoon. Sermon audio will go up on our app and on the website later this week. Next week, we'll look at Genesis 2. 
Now go outside, look at creation, and remember it was all for you. God bless you guys. Thanks for joining us. I'm Matt Morton, here with Brian Fisher and Blake Jennings, and we're here to talk about the sermon from September 8th, 2013, In the Beginning Creation. Some great issues that you guys brought up on Sunday related to Genesis chapter 1, the creation of the world, and some tough issues also. A lot of people struggle with Genesis 1. It becomes a real stumbling point for their faith and their walk with the Lord. And so, uh, we wanted to start by following up. Brian, I just want to ask you, uh, give us a rundown briefly of what are some of the key challenges that people struggle with in Genesis 1. I know some people struggle with Genesis 1 and science and how those fit together. What would you say are the big issues to approach Genesis 1 about? Well, actually, some of the greatest challenges exist within the text itself and how we interpret the text itself. For example, there are differences between chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, it appears that the animals are created first and then Adam or mankind. In chapter 2, it appears that the animals are created after mankind. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the existence of light on day 1 before the creation or at least the appearance of the sun on day 4. Uh, and then what is the significance of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1? Is that just an introduction? Is it a, a summary of what is to follow? Is it a unique event, the creation of the universe? Uh, is there a sequence of event or a causal relationship between verses 1 and 2? So within the text itself, there's some great challenges to interpret what's going on there. And then obviously how you reconcile Genesis 1 creation story with modern conclusions in the field of geology, so apparent age of certain geological features when, uh, according to young earth creationists, the earth is just six to 10,000 years old, or in the realm of physics, the apparent age of distant stars. The fact that we can see stars that are billions of light years away seems to imply that they are billions of years old. So reconciling those things is definitely challenging. Okay, so a lot of really tough issues. And I know we've all talked to some people for whom this is extremely important. When they would rate different doctrinal beliefs, they'd say, this may be right up there with the resurrection of Jesus. And then you talk with other people that say, you know, I don't know what's going on in Genesis, and I don't really care. It just isn't high on their radar. If you were to say, you know, in the grand scheme of Christian theology, kind of on the spectrum, uh, how important is this issue? Does it matter? In the grand scheme of Christian theology, I would say that the timing and the mechanics of when and how God created are not so important. On the other hand, affirming that Genesis 1 is true and that is, it is reliable in what it teaches is absolutely critical. So, for example, Gen uh, Genesis 1 teaches us that God created out of nothing. Uh, that is affirmed elsewhere in the Bible as well, in no uncertain terms, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Uh, as we've discussed previously also, it's more reasonable logically to believe that God exists rather than that God does not exist. To affirm the idea that uh, matter and energy are eternal and just simply exist 
out of nothing or that life came from random processes is not the most reasonable explanation for what we see. Um, so that's true logically, but as I said, also biblically, we, we have to affirm that Genesis 1 is true, it is reliable, it is not simply another ancient Near Eastern myth. In other words, we can't surrender the inerrancy and infallibility of God's word. However, however I do feel like we have to be very humble in recognizing our own fallibility in interpreting that inerrant word. Okay, great. Yeah, that issue of the authority of the scripture seems to really be key. There may be a variety of ways to interpret it. Blake, what would you say, someone who asked this question about the relative priority of Genesis 1 and how to reconcile those questions? Right. I I think it's helpful to try to delineate between different things that Genesis 1 teaches. Some of them are very important. Some of them are less important. I agree wholeheartedly with the things that Brian has mentioned. I would add to that the special creation of humanity, which we'll look at at much more detail next week as we get into chapter 2. But the Bible will say often that Adam and Eve were real historical people, a man specially created by God and then a woman created from his body. They were married together and became the the progenitors of the entire human race. And much of the theology that we'll get to in the New Testament is based on that reality. Paul will talk about a literal historical Adam and Eve in Romans 5, 1 Timothy 2. So that one is is highly important, holding to that. I know that that can be controversial for folks. Um, On the other hand, um, trying to figure out how exactly uh, evolution fits into the picture, that's a little bit less important as we think about plant life and animal life and fish and birds. So it's helpful to try to delineate between the different beliefs and, and make a case that not everything is as important as other things in the chapter. Blake, I completely agree. Regarding Adam and Eve, we cannot explain fallen human nature and consequently our need for salvation apart from a literal historical Adam and Eve who literally made a choice to rebel against God and plunged humanity into this fallen state. Yeah, so, and that's really key to recognize when we talk about the reliability of the scripture. It's okay that there may be metaphors and symbols in there, but the essence of the text when we talk about Adam needs to be historical or it undermines the whole thing. That's, that's a great point. Clearly, let, let me give one illustration regarding the creation account itself. Psalm chapter 139, we're told that we were knit together in our mother's womb. Well, clearly, that's a poetic description. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have what I would describe as a narrative description where God takes the dust of the earth and he makes Adam. That's not scientific. It's not clearly poetic. It is narrative. And we would have to affirm it's a, it's a true account within that particular genre of literature. Yeah, and for some people, they really struggle with these issues. And I know we're here in an academic environment in particular where creation and evolution and how that relates to the Bible can even be a stumbling block for some people as they are thinking about Christianity. Um, And I feel like y'all's sermons did a good job discussing those issues and providing some solutions. But for those who may be listening that have a friend, I know I've got friends and even family members who would say, this is a barrier to me trusting Christ. Blake, how, how would you respond to that person that says, I'm having a hard time believing in the Bible at all because of these issues? Right. That's an excellent question. When we think about these issues practically, I, I find that for most people, it can be helpful to tell them early on, you know, there are ways to reconcile much of what we see in Genesis 1 with much of what we see in modern science. But then you, as quickly as you, you can, you want to refocus them on the issues that really count. And the first of those issues, Brian has already mentioned, and that's the existence of the God of the Bible. 
you might go back to what we covered a couple weeks ago. God either exists or he doesn't, and there's a great deal of evidence in favor of his existence. And if he exists, well, then that, that changes everything because now you have a creator God who, who exists that you are accountable to. The second issue to focus their attention on is the life of Jesus. And I think that it can be easy for us in Genesis 1 to lose uh, focus on the reality that, that the coming of the Son of God, his death for our sins, his resurrection, that's really everything to our faith. That's the key. If Jesus rose from the dead, then that is everything. Then you have to deal with that fact, and that changes everything. Everything else is, comparatively speaking, pretty unimportant compared to the reality of the resurrection. And fortunately, there's a great deal of evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so I find that it's most helpful if people are willing to, to go with me, if they're willing to look at the evidence, to focus on evidence for the existence of the God of the Bible and evidence for Jesus being a real person who died and rose from the dead. If you can win the day on those issues, that's the biggest, uh, those are the biggest issues. That's the most important thing. And then you can bring them back once they've dealt with that evidence and look at some of these different views within Genesis 1. But, but keep the focus on the existence of God and the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, it seems like once a person acknowledges that there is a God who created the world and that he's capable of raising his son from the dead, some of these other uh, important but secondary issues tend to be resolved in their minds. So if you can believe in that kind of a God, then whether or not he could create in six days and how he could do it, those things don't seem to burn on your mind as, as hard. Right. I, I, in these kind of things, I always think of Peter's words to Jesus in the book of John. Uh, Jesus taught some very difficult things. Genesis 1 is a very difficult thing. Uh, and Peter at some point was asked by Jesus, so are you going to leave me? And Peter said, well, where else will we go for words of life? And um, that's what I think of with the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus is real, if he is um, God's son, then that changes everything. And if, if there's parts of the Bible that I can't explain, if there's things about who God is and what he's done that I can't explain, that's okay. Because I know that he exists, that Jesus rose for me, and that there's no other place to go for hope, for peace, for joy. So, yeah, I think focusing them on, on the essentials, the gospel, that's the most important thing. Well, uh, as we kind of wrap up, great discussion. Uh, Brian, start us off. Tell us a few resources. If someone wants to look a little further, where would they go to read about this topic? Sure. Let me give you a, a few resources on the age of the earth, creation, evolution type issues. First, there's uh, three views on creation and evolution. That's a point-counterpoint style of book that can give you a, an overview of those topics. And there's the Genesis debate. And then one that a book called Genesis Unbound by John Salehammer that is a resource particularly on a, a, a position that is known as uh, the promised land or uh, God's preparation of the land. So it takes a, a little more narrow view of Genesis chapter 1. But then I'd also want to point our listeners to uh, resources on the resurrection in particular because, uh, as you both have noted, that is the central issue. And for me, in a very personal, profound way, that was the issue that solidified my faith when I could establish the historicity of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That uh, took me so far in uh, confidence in my faith. And so I would direct our, our listeners to writings by William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas on uh, the resurrection. Great. 
and for any other resources or to listen to these podcasts and the sermons, you can always go to our website, grace-bible.org. Download our new app, Grace Bible Texas, and you can get all of these resources directed to your phone, at least in terms of what we provide here from Grace. Uh, Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Mm -hmm.